Tonight we're continuing our study of knowing God in chapter number five, which is on the theme of God incarnate, God incarnate. And at the beginning of the chapter, he talks about some of the challenges that people face, unbelievers face in wrestling with Christianity, some things that are hard to believe. And he talks about things like the atonement. How can one man his death, how can that stand in the place of other people, millions of people? How how is that possible? How does that work? Or the resurrection. A lot of people who are uh, confronted with the claims of Christianity stumble over the resurrection. How can someone raise themselves from the dead? How can someone come back to life who is really dead? Uh, The virgin birth. A lot of people, even uh, theologians throughout the 20th century have rejected the virgin birth. How, how is this possible that uh, a woman who's never known a man could have a child? Or many of the gospel miracles that are described there, such as Jesus walking on water, uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. How are these things possible? How are they explainable? And what he says is that really, while these things are challenges and really of our own accord, we can't overcome those challenges, can we? Of our own accord, of our own heart, of our own deadness of heart, we're not going to see those things to believe. But he says one of the most profound mysteries of Christianity and the one that helps explain all of those other ones is the incarnation. He says, if you can believe that God, the eternal God became man, then the rest of it is easy. You know, it's, it's not that hard to understand that the God-man could rise from the dead. It's not that hard to believe that the God-man could atone for our sins or do all these miracles. So he says, really, the, one of the most profoundest mysteries is this mystery of God-man together in Jesus Christ. And he, he gives this statement in this section of the chapter. He says, The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God made man, that the second person of the Godhead became the second man, the second Adam, determining human destiny, the second representative head of the race, and that he took humanity without loss of deity, so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. He says that's really the greatest mystery, the great Christian staggering claim. And if we can, if by the Holy Spirit, our eyes can be open to that, then it's no problem to believe everything else that the New Testament reveals about salvation through Christ. And so he asked the question, who is this child? Who is this child that was born in Bethlehem? First of all, the baby born at Bethlehem was God. The baby born at Bethlehem was God. And he says, we know Jesus as the son of God, but we might could misunderstand what that phrase means. Because when we think the son of, we might think of a physical birth, or we might think of certain limitations, or there being two different entities. And he says, so John, the apostle, in his gospel, 
wants to clear that up. And so he reveals Jesus as the son of God, but first he reveals Jesus as the word and who he is. What, what, who is the word and who is that? We need to understand that before we can really understand what it means for Jesus to be the son of God. And he kind of walks us through the opening of John's letter and shows us some of the things that John reveals to us. In the beginning was the word. He reveals the word's eternity. The fact that the eternal divine second person of the triune God has always been, which means he is not a created thing. He was there at creation. He was there before creation. He was there with the word, with God. So in the beginning was the word, is the word's eternity. And the word was with God, which points to the word's personality in distinction from the father. So while there is one God, there is something also that we have to say about the son being in relationship to the father. So the word, the eternal word, has always been and has been in relation with the father. Two personalities, if you will, within the Godhead. And of course, the third is the spirit. But the word's personality, he was with God. And the word was God, which is an absolute statement of the word's deity. That the word is God, was God, is God, always will be God. This is important for us to understand who Jesus is because what else, whatever else we're going to say about his humanity, we must not lose this, that he is still deity. He is fully God. Through him, all things were made. We see the word creating, which fits with what we read in the Old Testament of God using his word as the agent of his activity. And so God would say, let there be light, and the word would accomplish that activity. God's word was the carrying out, the agent, if you will, of his will, the second person of the triune God, the word creating. In him was life, that is the word animating. All life, everything that exists, has as its source this word this divine word of God. And also he makes the point that because the word is creating and giving source to all life, then the word cannot be a part of that creation. He is distinct from it and he is giving rise to creation. He is not a part of creation. He is the eternal creating and animating word. And that life was the light of men, the word revealing. This person, the word, who is with God, who is God, who is the one who creates, the one who gives life, he is also the one who reveals. He reveals God to people. And the word became flesh. Verse 14 of John chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is the word incarnate. And so together in the one person, of Jesus of Nazareth, we have the eternal, divine, fully deity, that word taking on human flesh, 
without ceasing to be God. That is a profound mystery, isn't it? It's a divine mystery that, that an eternal, all-sufficient, all-infinite, all-knowing, all-supreme, omnipresent being could at the same time be man without losing any of his deity and ceasing to be God. And so who is this baby born at Bethlehem? This baby born at Bethlehem was God. And this baby born at Bethlehem was God made man. God and man together in the one person of Jesus Christ. And he quotes from an ancient church creed, the Athanasian Creed, that gives a good description of this mystery from the word of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. Perfect God and perfect man, who although he be God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. So he's not two people, he is one person, one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of the manhood into God. In other words, God did not cease to be God and transform into humanity. Rather, humanity was added to the Godhead, was added to deity, such that Jesus could be both at the same time God and man. What is the purpose of this incarnation? The purpose of this incarnation is atonement. The purpose of Jesus becoming our God-man, our Savior, is so that he might redeem us and reconcile us to God. He gives a quote from James Denny, who was writing back around the turn of the 20th century, around the 19, early 1900s. And James Denny puts it this way, the New Testament knows nothing of an incarnation which can be defined apart from its relation to atonement. Not Bethlehem, but Calvary is the focus of revelation. And any construction of Christianity which ignores or denies this distorts Christianity by putting it out of focus. In other words, Jesus came down from the glories of heaven and took upon flesh, took upon the form of a servant, so that he might give himself for us, to redeem us. That's why he came. He was born to die. And he asks a question that has been kind of a debate in some interpretive and theological circles regarding Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7, and what the author means there by by Christ making himself nothing or emptying himself. And so in Philippians 2, 7, we have this word that is used there. And the Greek word is kenosis, which is the idea of emptying, the idea of um, becoming nothing. So what does that mean? And so there has uh, been this theory that arose out of Philippians 2, 7, the kenosis theory, and this theory tried to uh, make sense of some of the things that we read of Christ in the New Testament. And one of the things that gave rise to this theory was uh, some of the 
biblical criticism in the 1800s that started to question the authenticity and the truthfulness of the Old Testament scriptures. And so they would say, well, we know that this is coming from a liberal critical standpoint now. A liberal critical standpoint would say, look at all these errors in the Old Testament. If Jesus was really the God-man, then how could he give his stamp of approval to all these errors in the Old Testament? And so they came up with this kenosis theory on the basis of Philippians 2.7, which basically says that, that he emptied himself of some elements of his deity so that he would not know that there were errors in the Old Testament. And he would affirm these as truthfully, just like any other Jew of his day. That was, that's what gave rise to this theory. But the problem with the kenosis theory is, one, it has a very shaky foundation because it's trying to answer critical objections to the scriptures, which those critical objections to the scriptures have problems in and of themselves. But he, he brings out some other problems with the kenosis theory, and one of them is, is it's incredibly inconsistent because in order for the kenosis theory to hold true, that in order to become man, Jesus would have to lay aside some aspects of his deity. He says one of the problems with that is that that would have to be true even in glory. Because when Jesus took upon him humanity, he didn't take upon him humanity just for a period of time. He took upon humanity for, for all of eternity. And so if in, in order to become human, he had to lay aside some aspects of his deity, then that's going on even now post-resurrection in glory, in heaven. And that's a problem. And so that's one problem with the kenosis theory. And there are other issues with it as well. And a lot of it stems from a misunderstanding of what Paul means in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. So there's really a better explanation. And the better explanation is this, namely that when it says that Christ emptied himself, it's talking about his... He's talking about the, the elements of glory that are there, his prerogative in heaven. So it's not laying aside attributes or characteristics or elements of who he is as God. Rather, it is essentially a word of humility, which is why some of the more modern translations um, translate it that way. They will say something like, he humbled himself. Or King James even has it this way. He made himself of no reputation. So he, he's not emptying himself of any aspects of his deity. Rather, what he is doing is he is taking on the, the humiliation of humanity. And that is what Paul means by him emptying himself. He's not emptying out any aspects or qualities of deity. He is emptying himself of position, in a sense and lowering himself to a place of a servant. And so he gives uh, this statement in, in the chapter. He says, one way to understand this is when Paul talks of the son as having emptied himself and became poor, what he has in mind is the laying aside, not of divine powers and attributes, but of divine glory, glory and dignity. Like he says in John chapter 17, verse 5, the glory that I had with you before the world began. And so Jesus 
humbled himself and laid aside elements of glory and dignity, but did not empty himself of deity in any way. He goes on to say, part of the revealed mystery of the Godhead is that the three persons stand in a fixed relation to each other. The Son appears in the Gospels not as an independent divine person, but as a dependent one who thinks and acts only and wholly as the Father directs. So there's a better explanation for, like, for example, places in the scriptures where it seems like Jesus does not know something. For example, we have one place in the scriptures where it says, uh, of the place and the hour of the second coming of the Son of Man, no one knows but only the Father in heaven. How is it possible that the Son would not know that? Well, this is a voluntary limitation. It is a voluntary limitation in obedience to the will of the Father, in which one way of understanding it is the, the divine nature of Christ does not reveal certain aspects of his omniscient knowledge to the human nature of Christ. So that's one of the complex things to understand about the, the Christ person is that there are two natures, divine and human, but one person. And those two natures are not to be confused or mixed. They're joined together inseparably, but they're not the same. So there's a divine nature, there's a human nature. They're inseparably fused together in the one person of Christ. And so this voluntary limitation, at least with regards to his humanity, in obedience to the will of the Father, helps to explain certain aspects of the divine person of Christ. So there are things that are not fully revealed to the human mind of Christ. Just like the human body of Christ is not omnipresent, right? I mean, the, the human body of Christ can only be in one place at one time. But the eternal word, the divine nature of the second person of the triune God is omnipresent, just like the first and the third persons of the triune God are omnipresent. So there are some aspects of the divine nature that cannot be communicated to the human nature of Christ. But there's one person. And this was a voluntary limitation in obedience to the will of the Father. And so he goes on and he says in this section of the chapter, his knowing, that is his knowledge, like the rest of his activity, was bounded by his Father's will. So he had not given up the power to know all things at the Incarnation, but rather he willingly humbled himself to the will of the Father and willed himself to not have all of these pieces of information while he was on earth in fulfillment of his mission. So Jesus' limitation of knowledge is to be explained, he says, not in terms of the mode of the incarnation, that is giving up his deity, but with reference to the will of the Father for the Son while on earth. So he was here to accomplish a mission and he voluntarily limited himself in those ways. And so he says he became poor. What does that mean? It means a laying aside of glory. As Jesus prays, the glory that he had with the Father before the world began in John 17. It involved a voluntary restraint 
of power. And he placed himself in dependence upon the Father and the Spirit in the accomplishment of his mission. It involved an acceptance of hardship and servanthood. As Paul writes about in Philippians chapter 2, when it says that he made himself of no reputation or he humbled himself, he took upon him the form of a servant, right? A servant. Not nobility, but a servant. He became a servant to people. And his life was full of hardship and difficulty and rejection and ultimately the cross. So an acceptance of hardship and servanthood and the acceptance of a death that involved physical and spiritual agony. That's what it means when the writer of uh, Corinthians, Paul, says that he became poor. He became poor so that we might be made rich. He laid aside his glory. He voluntarily restrained his power. He accepted hardship and a death that involved not just the physical agony of the cross, but the spiritual weight of bearing our sins upon himself. And what was his motive for this? Love. Love. That Christ would love us who are unlovable. Un unlovable. We had nothing worthy in ourselves, yet Christ willingly did this for us so that we could be made right with God. And so it is a voluntary lowering of himself, a voluntary humility. And he ends the chapter with an application. And I don't know if you have your copy of the book with you or not, but um, this is toward the end of the chapter. And I was just going to read a section that I thought was particularly um, hard hitting. This is at the bottom of page 63. And this really goes to what we've been talking about this whole time, and that is the purpose of this study is not just to give us intellectual or academic knowledge of God, but to help us to know God in a relational way and to be transformed by that knowledge to become more like God. And so he provides an application here at the end of the chapter that I think is really, really hard hitting and helps put this into an application for us. He says, it is our shame and disgrace today that so many Christians, I'll be more specific, so many of the soundest and most orthodox Christians go through this world in the spirit of the priest and the Levite in our Lord's parable, seeing human needs all around them. But after a pious wish and perhaps a prayer that God might meet those needs, averting their eyes and passing by on the other side. He says that is not the Christmas spirit, speaking of the incarnation in Bethlehem. Nor is it the spirit of those Christians, alas, they are many, whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home and making nice middle-class Christian friends and bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways and who leave the sub-middle-class sections of the community, Christian and non-Christian, to get on by themselves. In other words, he's saying, if we come to know God in Christ, as Christ came for us, and he came for us in humility, 
He made himself poor. He gave himself to us to the ultimate extreme, to the greatest of sacrifices. Why? So that we might be made rich. He says, if we're going to come to know God and know Christ, then some of that knowledge should translate into our lives becoming more like Christ and giving ourselves to others so that their lives might be made better. And so he just challenges us to uh, look around us and to see the needs and to not do as um, the scriptures say, you know, be warmed and filled, but the one who actually does something with indeed and in truth. And so he finishes the chapter with a couple of verses, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And Philippians 2, 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who humbled himself and took upon him the form of a servant.